the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we continue our walk into the badlands of development as we review the seemingly impossible task of securing our applications. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. Hello, Mark. So we're back in the badlands. Well, I'm actually back from Texas, not the Badlands. Is, is there a difference? I think there's the Badlands in Texas. I'm not sure. I'm going to get, get shouted at. But no. So why were you in Texas? I was at Into the Box conference, which is a great Java core fusion conference or CFML conference put on by the Auto Solution guys who are famous for Cold Box, Command Box, and a whole bunch of other box Boxes. products. Yeah. No, it was very, very interesting and met some of our listeners which was really nice to to get some very good compliments. Awesome. It's also nice to confirm that we actually have some. Yeah, <laughs> there's human beings listening to us rather than us just shouting into the void. So it was good times, good times. Good stuff. What are we talking about this this time, this month, week? Well, in this fortnight. show, we're going to be talking about, and it's a kind of follow-on from our OWASP episode a couple of episodes back, we're actually going to talk about how to actually protect our stuff, the things that we have to put in place, Things that we have to look out for, that is not just a list of general things that we have to look out for. It's actually get, getting into the, the deep trenches, into the badlands on, on how we're actually going to do this. Yeah. If you have any questions out there that you want us to cover, maybe in a future podcast, you, my dear listener, can contact us at localhost.fm on the Twitter. Or you can email us at show at localhost.fm. You can shout at Rob on... At Rob Dudley on Twitter. Or you can compliment me at Mark Drew on Twitter. So if you have any comments on this show or previous shows, just let us know. And and that is the division, right? You know, I get the negativity and the criticism, all compliments and, and love and praise to Mark. Thank right. you. Right. That's yeah. that's the way it should be done. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose where do we start with this? Because this is this is broad again, this is yeah. quite huge, even given that we covered the entire OWASP top ten, as you say, a couple of episodes ago. If you haven't listened to that episode, by the way, you know, don't go and listen to it now, but maybe off the back of this. Yeah. It's it's a good compliment. They they sit side by side. Yeah. And I suppose my starting point would be to point out, get your tinfoil hat ready, that every application out there on the web is fundamentally hackable. Right. Don't be paranoid. They are really out to get you. Yeah. And they might not be out to to get you. They might be out to get somebody else, but they'll use you to get them. And this is this is the the key reason why we as application developers have to be diligent and have to actually do and, and learn and waste all of this time. It's not even a waste. We have to spend all of this time on this stuff. And the the classic example that I've got of um, a system that you might look at and think, well, there's that's not hackable. There's nothing there to be hacked. There's no sensitive data. There's no social security numbers or credit card information. Is uh, the site JSBin. Mm that was built out by Remy Sharp, and he wrote a series of blog posts a couple of years ago now. Yeah. And I think he's also, did you say he's done it in a conference talk as well? Yeah, he did an example there. The, the, the hassle of something that, you know, if you don't know JSBin, it's somewhere that you can go and you can basically run little snippets of JavaScript and, and share them and test them. 
right. pretty innocuous stuff. It's like it's it's basically you can put JavaScript, CSS, and HTML, run it, and you can see what what is happening there. But also share that yeah combination. So it's kind of, of a, a place to test little bits and collaborate on little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And you think it's pretty innocuous because frankly, it's storing basically other people's sample code. And if you go and you read the series, the problems that he had with people using the JS bin platform, not so much to access other people's data, but using it to attack other websites. Right. You know, using XML RPC, not XML RPC, the other one, Ajax, basically, to make requests to other websites. And of course, he's running and paying for all of the servers that are running JS bin. Yeah. All of this stuff comes back on him. And it's a really interesting read. It's a bit depressing, although it has a happy ending. Yeah. So we'll put that in the show notes. But as an example, you know, even something like JSBin, which doesn't really store much of particular value or confidentiality, is eminently hackable and caused the developer a lot of problems keeping it secure. And this is not only just for developers, I think. This is something that businesses have to be put part of your development budget or practice because... It always goes on developers like the, the the product managers like just concentrating on putting out features because that's what makes the business money. But this is something that you have to take up on part and parcel of your business cost. I mean, putting my business hat on, it's like it's 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 a it's the same thing as you hire a cleaner. It's the same thing as you do all you know hire a receptionist and you hire all these things that don't make money for your business. This doesn't make money for your business, but without it, you're going to be in a very dirty office or you're going to have annoyed customers because no one is you know, being let in to meet you or... I'm using very bad examples there, aren't I, Rob? I think but. it's also, it's just, you know, it's, it's cost. Um, and with a lot of this stuff, real cost. If you have your, you know, your lovely office and you've got all of your iMacs and you've got your, your 4K widescreen tellies for presenting to clients and the door is made out of balsa wood, um, somebody's <laughs> going to knock that door down and steal all your stuff. And that is going to cost you a lot of money to get it replaced. Fair enough, you can insure against it. Exactly the same thing in uh, the application world. There are fines. That you, there are lawsuits lurking oh, yeah. um, if you don't do this stuff right. So whilst it doesn't make you money, doing it right can potentially avoid losing quite a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you'd be sued to hell and back, especially in the States. But even there, you have to have public liability insurance to cover you against this. And that's another cost that's not protecting you because, I mean, what GDPRs come in now, you know, which is slightly different, but you get, what, up to 40 million, isn't it? Like 40 million or 10% of turnover, whichever is the greater. Right. You know, so, like, these are... These are big numbers. Yeah, these are big numbers and have catastrophic effects on your company. So we're kind of being serious here, even though we're wearing our tinfoil hats today. And it can happen to the best of us, such as Remy Sharp. So where do we start? I mean, we've terrified all of our listeners into a quivering mass in the corner. (laughs) It's okay, don't cry, don't cry. cry. It'll get better. So this episode is to see how we can alleviate that pain or how we can protect ourselves a little bit in some easy ways and, and how we can think a bit like the bad guy and start getting our paranoia on so that we can develop better apps, right? So I to think- prevent the hacker, we must become the hacker. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, well, let's start out. Like, what's the first thing? It's like, you have to start programming on, on a daily basis with with a defensive posture, so, so to speak, right? You know, just, you- just to be completely clear, we're not speaking literally. 
You right. don't have to don't have to program in a suit of armor with a mace yeah. at hand. But no, this is defensive programming is a series of uh, it's basically it's a mindset. It's the idea that you approach your code, you approach your application from the basis that everybody is evil all of the time. Yeah. And it's surprising just as a quick sidebar. Uh, I don't know if any of our listeners ride motorbikes. Um, I do. I'm you know, a very happy motorcyclist. But one of the first things they teach you at motorbike school, which you have to go to in the UK, I don't know about further afield, is the concept of defensive riding. Right. Because the best way to keep yourself safe is to assume that everybody is trying to kill you. They're not. We're not suggesting that for a second. But the minute you assume that posture, you're basically going to be making decisions from a security-first perspective. Yeah. And there are a couple of, of great examples of this. Do you want to lead off with with the, the first one we've got? Well, I think user input validation is this whole idea of you might be doing blacklists of of stuff that shouldn't go into your you know your form fields or things like that. Why not whitelist? So the moment someone submits it, you know you check that that number is just a number. You have to check it that it cannot be anything else, right? That, for example, a name doesn't have semicolons in them or odd things like that Mm -hmm. but instead of saying it doesn't have a semicolon why don't you just say it should only have letters that are from a to z in it for example and maybe a dash that's a kind of white list rather than a black list don't try to look at the the things that shouldn't be there but just say these are the only things that should be there yep one of the other points on on validation is you can do an awful lot of very quick and easy validation without having to reach for the regular expressions book. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is built in to a lot of languages. There'll be really easy ways that you can apply filters or uh, you can parse user input. The one big gotcha I would say here is, of course, we always validate user input uh, on the server side. Right. You can optionally and probably will validate it on the client side, but that's that can a, be so easily defeated. Exactly. And that's and the person that's going to defeat it is going to be a person that knows how to defeat it. So the JavaScript validation or the browser validation that you do on the client side is literally for your clients. And I'm using people that word in, in a dual way. It's basically a nicety for your customers and people using your product. But the server side is to defend your server. Right. Yeah, it's, it saves them having to round trip to the server to be told that their their username is unacceptable. But at the same time, you also want to make sure you're doing those checks first thing on at the server side. And this uh, this applies equally if you're using um, you know standard just you know jQuery decorated HTML, or if you're using a full front end framework, React or Angular. Um, you still need to make sure that you're doing this validation in both places. And if you have to choose, you do the validation server side. Yeah. It's easier to like do a round trip to the server and come back showing some kind of message rather than, well, losing your whole database to, to hackers. Yeah. We've kind of covered whitelisting of requests. So this is the idea of just allowing the things that you want people to do to do. And again, the difference I think is between blacklisting and whitelisting is that blacklisting, you're trying to think like the hacker and trying to see what, what the possible hacks can be but the whitelisting is saying this is the only thing that i allow you to do which is much easier to say than all the the millions of other ways that people can attack your site so for example in mvc frameworks i think front controller frameworks you have like the only 
file that can be called is your index.cfm or your index.php or right mm -hmm. so if someone's trying to call your other act underscore something.php file that shouldn't happen but you're not going to make a controller that says well these are all the files that you cannot call you basically say this is the only file you can call if if it's not that one the request goes away. And it's actually, it, I mean, fair enough, you might be thinking, oh, God, I can't do that. But it's surprisingly simple to do with stuff like, uh, especially if you've got yeah. Nginx in front of it, the rule-based systems built into web servers, it's all there for you. Depending on what you're actually programming in, there are normally settings and configurations and tools that, you know, the mileage may vary. I said, I think I mentioned it last time, PHP has something called OpenBaseDIR, which basically says the location that this file can be and it stops people randomly calling scripts from, say, mm -hmm. slash uploads. Right. But at the same time, a lot of this can be done very easily using simple configurations on, on the web server. And any request that comes in that doesn't match that rule set, just get bounced. Also, I think this is kind of like an aside, but I always think that any user input, uh, so any files that they can upload, any files that are created by with content from a user, right? however you, however you do that, never put it in the web route. Right, so if someone up uploads an image that is their portrait, that might be an executable file that someone might be able to execute because you've put it in the slash uploads folder, right? So that that folder should be out of web root. Try to to have the least amount of files in your web root accessible to the world. Yep. So in, in CoreFusion, this goes for components. It's kind of user upload one hundred and one. <laughs> right. <laughs> user upload management one hundred and one. Stick it somewhere else. But this is also other files. I try to, you know, in ColdFusion, I try to put everything outside of the web root. So you have a web root folder that's just literally all your web accessible files and components. And to be honest, or, or, normally, mm. you know, on a lot of these frameworks, especially we mentioned, you know, Front Controller, actually your web root is a directory with a file in it. Yeah. And then that goes off and it loads all of the rest of the application stack from, from somewhere else on the file system. And it means that even if somebody were to manage to attack your web route, it's really easy to spot. Yeah. But we'll kind of come on to that in a second. The next point is one that I, I kind of bang on about. This one's a bit harder to do, but it's the concept of least privilege that anybody who's done anything with information security will have heard time and time again. And basically this covers the entire spectrum of how you set up your application and how you build your user system and how you configure connections to your database and all of this stuff is don't give any part of your system more power than it needs to do the job. Right. So for exa an example, which is a simple attack, is like if you are running your queries with a high admin level, right? So your database user has got uh, exe access, right? You can actually call exe functions from MSSQL, for example, and MySQL. So if the user that's running or accessing MySQL has access to that, that's your first attack vector, right? Yeah. I don't want to... I mean, the, the trouble is that there are so many different points at which least privilege should be applied, and they all have different... Uh, different controls. So the most obvious two that kind of spring to mind are don't run your application server as root. Right. You know, run it as a non-privileged user. or That only has access to, let's say, the web root. 
yeah, or, yeah. or best yet, you know, run it as a non-privileged user that's um, ch-rooted, if you're on a Linux system, mm. into a, a jail, into a specific directory. It physically cannot leave that space, so immediately any attack is somewhat limited, although not entirely proofed. Databases, as you say, a lot of the, the SQL injection stuff requires the ability to union tables, um, what have mm. you. If you're not using it, don't give the user that permission. Right. How often in a modern application, if you've built an application that runs with soft delete, why have you got delete as a as a permission that that user has? Why have yeah. you got drop, drop tables? tables. Yeah. I have, yeah. you know, I don't think I've ever built an application that has actually needed to dynamically create and drop SQL tables. Yeah. So, so don't give your user that permission. So yeah. And the thing is, it's, it's, it's also within your application when you're building out your own user frameworks, you need to be thinking, what should this user be able to do? And you start from nothing, build up until they can do the job and then stop. Not start from everything and, and pair away. Yeah, and that's at least privilege, right? That's like, you, you, you can now read this file, okay? Now, until you get to a point that, that he needs to execute that file, don't give him that, that permission. Mm-hmm. I think the next one is rate limiting of actions. So a user will click at about one click per second. Don't quote me on that one, but you know that makes sense, right? Is this is how they'll probably explore your site? How that's you take you know ten seconds to write your password or something, right? It's not going to be uh, you know half a second to write your password and then submit it. So if you start seeing people behave in that pattern you can start rate limiting it, right? Or you then say like, a usual one which is incredibly annoying is when, it's, it's good, but it's annoying, is that when you put in a password wrong three times, it then locks you out for 10 seconds or mm-hmm. 10 minutes or something like that. So yeah, so limit the rate that people can interact with your application. I know this goes against like, you know, Twitter, that is a, a lot, it's Twitter ideals of like being able to tweet 50 million tweets a, a a second, but even they have like rate limiting of saying you can only do this, this amount of actions against the the, the server. I think we we made reference to this in the last episode, although tangentially. And bear in mind what we're talking about here is basically slow your application down to the point that it is still fast for a, a human, but it's really really slow for a computer. Yeah. And the best way of thinking about this is if we take, say, for example, an eight character password. And basically, you can crack at, what, a billion passwords per second, which is perfectly achievable. They will be able to break that password running at full speed in 83 days. Yeah. Okay? If we can slow that down to the point where your system will only accept a 1,000 passwords per second, which is still loads, by the way. It's still really fast. What's that done to that number? Yeah, we've gone from a billion passwords a second to achieve a break rate of 83.5 to 1,000, which means it's basically gone up by 10 orders of magnitude or whatever it is. So we're not talking about making things slow. We're just saying, actually, a lot of these attacks can be very easily carried out by powerful, affordable systems, and they can be done incredibly quickly. The minute you slow all of this stuff down just a little bit to, you know, by our scale, our standards... All those attacks go away. And these attacks are going to look like normal usage patterns, right? In a Mm -hmm. weird way, because they'll be like just someone trying to log in. It's not going to be like someone sending you junk. Well, it will be junk, but, you know, A-A-A-A-A, A-B-A-A-A-B, you know, whatever. I think 
We're going to talk about the other ways that you detect this stuff in a second, but if you've got to the point where you you know slow down the number of concurrent and then potentially actually there are some really good systems out there that increase the slowdown with every failure. Right. Coding one is a bit of a pain, I'm not going to lie, but there are certain applications out there that do it. There are configurations, again, that you can do on the web server. You can do this at the request level. Mm. You can do this at the firewall level, I'm pretty sure, yeah. where you can basically say, yeah, start slowing it down. If we get a 1,000 requests simultaneously, or, or sorry, back-to-back from this user, let's start backing them off a bit. You know, there are tools out there to do that. But before we go into those tools, the next one is clear passwords, right? So if you're submitting or saving, not submitting, because you have to submit it kind of in clear, but if you're actually saving that password in the users table under the password column and you're saving exactly what people are putting in, right, stop what you're doing, stop listening to this podcast, go and change that right now. Yeah. Go and, you know, add some salt, you know, loop it a, a, a thousand times, creating enough entropy that you now have like a mangled mess that you can recreate next time someone tries to log in. And even that will slow people down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know, we, we spoke about this last time around, but this is basically hash your passwords, use slow hashing, so script, bcrypt, blah, blah, blah. Make sure that you've salted the hash. There is no excuse in this day and age. There is no reason to store plain text passwords. And even if your product manager or your manager is saying, well, we need to be able to see the passwords to support the user. No. There's ways around it. There's, yeah, basically password resets. There's, you know, there's all sorts of different techniques that we can use. You should never, ever, 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 ever be able to read a user's password. Because users are dumb and they reset them. Sorry, they reuse them. And what was it, Twitter last week? Yeah, log um, Got hauled over the coals, not because they were storing them plain, but because actually they just slipped into a log file somewhere. Yeah. I'm not going to bash Twitter on this one because, you know, they're huge. But you also need to think everywhere your password goes. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get on to one of our next topics, actually, because there's a, a bit of a gotcha later on, again, with passwords and submission. Mm. But yeah. Clear text passwords. No, just don't no, do it. Just don't do it. And I think that's a, quite a big one because I've seen this quite a lot before. And years and years and years ago, back in the midst of the dot-com boom and stuff like that, I was in a meeting with somebody about forgotten passwords, and they said, we have to store them clear. And I said, well, no. I mean, this was a long time ago. I said, this is a silly idea. So like, well, because how are we going to retrieve the forgotten password? How are the people in the call center going to give them their passwords? So, excuse me? Yeah, we need to have a call center that you phone up and get, you know, if you reset your password. So we can generate passwords. We can do hundreds of things to for a person to have their password. And he couldn't get it around his head that we could actually programmatically do, give them a new password and say, here's your new password. But how are they going to do it? And I had a whole argument with him. And I, I, there was a lot of literal banging my head against the desk at the time. But... I digress. So this is a, a topic close to my heart. Once we've got our passwords all secured, uh, and this isn't, by the way, an exhaustive list. This is just some oh. of our, our you know, primary um, pain points, I suppose. Is this Robin, Robin Mark's top five list or top six list? <laughs> the other one, of course, is make sure you're using SSL. Oh, there's no reason why not to, is there? Well, not anymore. And to be honest, there wasn't really much of a reason 
back then? Well, there was because if you get like multi subdomain SSL certificates, it would, they were pretty expensive. Oh, come on. A wildcard cert has been like sub $100 for two years for the right. past 10 years. Right. But if you and have like enough. a cheeky app, right, you're trying to make your cheeky app. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you have to SSL it, and, and it's now going to cost you like about 100 bucks to put SSL. I can understand it, but now we have something called Let's Encrypt, and it will provide you SSL certificates for all your apps so that you can be nicely protected so that, that not you, but your clients can be nicely protected when they're communicating with your website. Yeah, and this just means that immediately any kind of session interception, any kind of traffic sniffing on shared networks any kind of man in the middle, all of this stuff that you would normally be hopefully terrified by just goes away overnight. Yeah. It, it brings a small small overhead. You know, you do have to maintain and manage your SSL certs. And, and the Let's Encrypt guys have made this really easy. Yeah. But yeah, there is no excuse for not using SSL for anything that flows over the public internet. Yeah. And I would actually go one further and say there is no excuse for not using SSL for internal communication between servers. I think even MySQL by default, if I remember, it just starts nagging you if you're not using TLS and and, virus and secure communications. Okay. Uh, yep. If, you, if so, you start it up in Docker, guys, go and start up MySQL in Docker. First thing that it says, it says like, mm, this is in insecure mode. Don't like it. Don't like it. I've got to, you know, Take my hat off to the Auto Solutions guys. I know I've already mentioned them because they did a product called Command Box, which is a CLI for uh, CFML apps, which allows you to start up a server really easily. You just do box server start, and you can define a whole bunch of things. Now, this is great for your development environment and also for production. This is not meant to be a plug for them, but part of the configuration, you can actually put SSL equals true. And it would generate a certificate, do all the magic for you. And now your development environment is serving over HTTPS. So you can not even serve your development environments or even your production environments over HTTP. You know, mm-hmm. you're 100% secure from the moment you're developing all the way to production. Right. And actually, that's another really, really good, uh, it's a good developer pain point because SSL versus non SSL, as we all know, can cause issues with things like AJAX requests. It can cause issues with cross-domain loading because HTTPS, www.markdrewrocks.com and HTTP, markdrewrocks.com, are treated as two completely separate hosts. Right. So realistically, you want to make sure that your dev environment is running under SSL, not for the security element, but just to ensure that you're actually running as close to your production environment as possible so you don't run into issues with not having stuff work when you push it up there and all of a sudden it's beautifully encrypted, except that one asset isn't because we hard-coded the path to it or <laughs> right. you know, that, that, form field, that form path isn't quite right. An inspector is going to be your, your friend then, right? Oh, uh, it's, it's noisy. Yeah. yeah. No, but the inspector is going to be your friend. It's going to be telling you, like, look, I'm trying to get this thing from, from an a insecure domain. So when, even when you're developing, you can now, now see this stuff that... If you weren't using SSL in development, you wouldn't see. You know, so it's really important to to start getting getting that. The one final point I would have on SSL is don't treat it as uh, and I know most developers won't, but don't treat it as a panacea. Right. Understand what it's doing, and more importantly, understand what it's not. 
because there was probably an in in you know pre let's encrypt fair enough ssl um issuance has always been a little bit broken um from a validation perspective but there was a big thing about the fact that oh they're https i can trust them this right. doesn't mean you no. can trust it's not a trust thing it's a security thing right and there was a really interesting bit of research i'll see if i can dig it out which said that actually let's encrypt have issued something crazy like a hundred thousand certificates wow. for Google or something that has Google in the name. Now these are clearly phishing sites. Right. And Let's Encrypt does not make the distinction. It's basically, yeah, you want a, a, a certificate, you can validate that you own that domain. Here you go. So don't make the mistake of thinking that this solves other problems it mm. does basically mean that your traffic to and from your website is encrypted and hidden from lying eye of uh, prying eyes uh, and that's it right mm -hmm. but that in itself is really important to do and there's right. no excuse not to so how can we test for more all of these things like whilst we're developing like how can we look at or what are our actual sites, right? There's well, I have a, I have a hacker in a box on my <laughs> desk and I just feed him code Come on, Philip, hack this uh, this server. I mean, the, the reality is, how do we do it? How, how do we test for it? There's a whole bunch of different techniques. There's black box external, there's internal, there's linting and static analysis. Mm -hmm. There's tools that will target different elements of it. There are fuzzing tools. And, of course, there's actually paying people quite a lot of money to try and break into your stuff. Right. But this is a tool by HP, you're going to tell me, that actually does static code analysis and they do dynamic code analysis. So they actually hit it uh, from external. They're quite expensive. It, it's, it's per scan. It's for PCI compliance generally. And one of the easy searches that you can save yourself £3,000, and you can thank me later or buy me a beer, is literally look for the word password or API token in your code, right? Just that's mm -hmm. one of the reports that it gives you. And, and the password could be anything. It could be like plain text, like, please enter your password, right? But you could actually start doing that and it will help you. But there are other tools. One of them that I've used on several sites is something called HackMyCF. Great name. By a company called Foundair. And basically, you put a little script on your site that it then goes and asks some information about your server securely, right? And it gets that information back from your server. And then it tells you a whole bunch of things that you have to do. Like, for example, that you're not up to the latest hotfix, right? So, like, yep. uh, that it tells you operating system. It says, hey, wait a second, your certificate has expired, so it's broken. Or, or you've got 777 permissions on the web root directory. Right. Or, and yep. it does a lot of CoreFusion-specific stuff, but to be honest with you, if you're running As any you kind expect. of... Sorry? As you would expect from right. a tool called Hack My CF. Sure, but it actually gives you a lot of stuff about SSL. It gives you a lot of stuff about Tomcat, for example, saying that. Mm -hmm. So they keep a database of like the vulnerabilities that for the stack. But stuff like, you know, session cookies are not HTTP only, right? HTTPS only. HTTPS only, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and, you know, various things. You know, it, it will literally go and check up your site and send you a report, you know, every month saying this is the status of your server, right? My big takeaway from that, aside from the fact that this is a, I, I've used this when back in my cold fusion days, we used this on our core application. Mm -hmm. It's the regularity of it. 
Yeah. It's the fact that it's continually checking, regularly checking, not continually, at an interval. So because stuff changes, you know, mm. there's a, a new, um, not so much with Java or what have you, but all of a sudden there's a new Java version you have to retool or you put a new bit of your application in and you have to monkey with some permissions. You need to keep on top of this stuff routinely. And, and the- automating that is really, really useful. Yeah. There's also, like, if you're using, like, PHPs, there's a WordPress scan. Oh, this is, um, yeah, so if you're developing WordPress, or if you just, you're one of those developers who's inherited and looked after a WordPress site, WP scan slightly different to HackMyCF, in that HackMyCF, you actually put an agent on the server, effectively, which gives it this kind of omniscient view. Right. WP scan is an external black box scanner. Okay. But bear in mind that that view of an application can actually be quite useful anyway, because that's the view that an attacker will get. Right. And what it does is it goes through and it does all sorts of requests and and all sorts of skullduggery to basically try and work out exactly what version of everything your WordPress site is running. And as anybody who's done WordPress development will know, the weakness isn't so much WordPress core, although there have been zero days and what have you, quite a lot of them, in fact. It's plugins, it's themes... And where WP Scan really starts to shine is it will enumerate all of your plugins, all of the themes that are installed, even if you're not using them. And it looks and cross-references them against the CVE database for known vulnerabilities. And it will give you a report of exactly what is likely to be exploitable. I don't have a latest version of this. Uh, we don't have it in our show notes. But NPM sent me an email the other day that they're starting to do like NPM scan. So you can actually look through all your NPM dependencies and it will tell you von- vulnerabilities as well. So I don't want this podcast to just be like, hey, we do ColdFusion and it's just PHP, ColdFusion kind of stuff. Like even NPM is getting in on the act, especially after all the left pad issues and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. If you're into Node, look at the NPM scanner because that will also like give you more information. We'll put a link in the show notes for all of this stuff. So Yeah, so there's there's tooling out there and basically, you know, we're looking internally, we're looking at reviewing the server architecture, we're looking at external style, you know, more traditional penetration testing style tooling. And then, yeah, static analysis and what have you. So uh, what else we got? Because there's tons of these. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking... I'm going to go th- quickly through a, a couple of them. CFLint is something I use quite a lot, which is a linting program for ColdFusion. I'm sure there's linting in for other languages. But if you start looking at the, the security sides of it, it will show you, like, if you're not using CFQuery params straight off the bat. And you can be doing this continually. So you can be fixing stuff as you go along. Yep. A CPD, a copy-paste detector in any language, would be really good because it shows you how bad... Okay, so it's a bad coding practice to just copy and paste a whole bunch of stuff across your application, right? You don't want to do Mm -hmm. that. You want to, like, keep it simple. You don't don't repeat yourself, you know, modularize, do whatever. But the copy and paste detector, from a security standpoint, shows you how broad your security hole could have gone across your application, right? So if you're using the same encryption algorithm or you're using the same uh, API key or something, and you've pasted it somewhere because you couldn't be bothered to go and get it out of the environment or something like that, right? You can start seeing for that with a copy-paste detector. And to be honest, one of the reasons that we look at Dry, aside from the fact that it makes us better coders and what have you, is it means that actually we're not spreading this potentially bad code around, right? So Yeah, good way to, to check for that. Did we mention this in the OWASP? This was part of OWASP, but... Is something... I think we touched on it at the end. Right. 
So the Z Attack Proxy project is a really good project for you to start scanning your application. It like looks at various different factors. Is it basically a, a proxy? So you can start like doing queries to it, but it and it will start checking your site, right? So it will tell you about cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. It will look at loads of different OWASP topics and try and give you an insight in what you've got vulnerable there. Go and download it from the OWASP website. Uh, it's called Zap, Z Attack Proxy. Zap. I like I like that name. It makes me think of bug hunting on your thing. <laughs> I mean, one big part of all of these things is what is your website saying? And preparing for this show, I found a great site that actually gives us insight into this, and it's called SameSites.org. I'm not. I don't know what the background of this site is, but if you look at your site, you might have one IP address that other sites might be using. So that server might be actually hosting multiple sites that you don't know about. Are they secure? Because they might be getting to your site through a, a site next door. How many other databases are on the database server that you're deploying to on a shared hosting, for example? Right? Yeah, and what level of, of isolation and permissions have you got? And it's even, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be shared, traditional shared hosting where you've got multiple things on one server. A lot of uh, places will reuse uh, reuse IP addresses and, and they'll have multiple servers. So you might think, well, I'm fine, I'm on my server. Yeah. But if the neighboring server is vulnerable, generally speaking, a lot of our security stuff is, is very much based on the perimeter model. Mm. It's very outward facing. Yeah. So the minute you can breach that perimeter, you're, you're, you're in, you're in the network, and you can often then actually explore and, and take advantage of the fact that the internal network traffic is nowhere near as well secured or uh, nowhere near as, as, as scrutinized. I mean, this is the thing, is you're, you're there looking very carefully at your user input and making sure that users aren't doing some stuff that's, that's nasty. Are you looking at your, your internal mail server? Right. Probably not. Your internal mail server is trusted. It's, it's here. It's mine. It's internal. And yet that can quite happily be banging away at your systems or, or doing stuff in a much more virulent way. I mean, we'll talk about this when we when we talk about firewalls, I suppose, uh, in yeah. a moment. But yeah. So how can we fix this? You, you, you set us up for the firewalls, right? So we can do this by doing something called a WAF. I love the name of this. What's a WAF, Rob? It's a whiff away from a silly name for table tennis. <laughs> it's a web application firewall. Right. So this is, compared to a normal firewall, a normal firewall sits in, it's a physical thing, a physical box that sits, well, nowadays it might be a virtual box, but the whole point is a separate box that is, is stopping traffic going to your website and checking it, right? It's like an inspector. Yeah, so it's, it's a network firewall is the, the standard one that manages what ports traffic is allowed through on, where it's allowed from, where it's allowed to, at what speed. And depending on how much you've spent on this thing, potentially it starts to get really quite sophisticated. Right. And the boundary between a network firewall and an application firewall starts to blur. Right. But the web application firewall doesn't really concern itself so much with network traffic. It assumes that you have a network firewall, by and large. Yep. It concerns itself with application-level information. Yep. So usually how these things go, that they go, they are part of your code, but they go at, at the earliest possible part of the request, at the top of the request, so before mu much else has happened in your application, and they'll stop anything that looks dodgy. before. So it's within your application, but before much has happened in your application, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
So, for example, there's a great one for ColdFusion, anyway, which is called FuseGuard, which comes in right after your application has started, or like even at the top, then it starts looking at any inputs, like on the cookie, on the form, on the URL, and it starts looking for, for things that you should be cleaning, but it's actually, this is why you get a WAF to do it for you, which is malicious file uploads, if the people are trying to execute code. And again, this gets updated more than, than you will, right? Path traversal attacks, password dictionary attacks, you know, it, you know, malicious user agent, etc. Like all the different things that we talked about in OWASP, this is actually looking out and cleaning it up. So what it can do is so like, if I get a malicious attack, I just stop it, right? Yeah. And more importantly, I think what's quite interesting... And the advantage here, of course, is that because it's inside the application, it knows way more about what the application actually should and shouldn't do. Right. It knows, you know, it understands what uh, a SQL query is and parameterization is. It understands what file uploads should be allowed and shouldn't. It's aware of the context of your application as a whole, which means it can effectively do a much better job than just a standard inspector on the sidelines, you know, a, a perimeter-based thing yep. at making sure that what's happening is correct. It can also, normally, they come with things like rate limiting built in and a whole bunch of other really, really cool features. I mean, one of, one of the cool features is a report, so you can start seeing the stuff that it stopped. Because then you start understanding, as a developer, what kind of things are being, you know, how you're being attacked. Mm -hmm. So reporting and alerting. Yeah. You know, you want to make sure that, fair enough, this stuff is being stopped, but make sure you know it's happened. Because that will give you an indication of potentially if you've got a lot of a lot of traffic hitting a certain point, it's like, well, does that mean that we're we're now being targeted by a group, or does it mean that actually there is an issue in my my code that's allowing this kind of request in, and I should probably hard throttle that to to chill out the the alerts we're getting from the WAF. Right. There's a couple of others that, I'd, and again, I keep referencing WordPress, if only because it's traditionally one of the things that as web developers we tend to inherit. Uh. Yeah. So, oh, you're a web developer. Look after this WordPress site. But uh, WordPress has a system called WordFence, All right. which does a very similar thing. It's you know it loaded very early on in the application, in the request uh, lifecycle, and checks all of this stuff out and, mm -hmm. and blocks things and what have you. And there's one that I've used, which actually is commercial, again, not on commission, but this is called Screen, S-Q-R-E-E-N. And this is a, a multi-language hosted WAF. So there's a little agent that you install and configure, and this has, I think, agents for, I can't remember off the top of my head, it definitely has Ruby on Rails, uh, it has Node, Python, there's a Java agent, although I'm not sure whether or not it plays nicely with CF, I'm afraid. Mm. And there's a PHP agent. But in theory, should I mean, again, I'm talking out of context, but if you're looking at the URL and form and cookie scopes that are coming in, if, if you're using Java, you, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Well, you say that. <laughs> Right, okay, yeah. no, fair enough. But yeah, no, so that's a good one. I think the last one is something I actually used for our own site. Are we disclosing too much information? It doesn't matter, I we've got a static so. site. It's, it's going to be fairly obvious yeah. to anybody who's looking at your site. Yeah, well, for localhost, for it's not our my site. site, it's our site. Our site. We both own it, which is Cloudflare. So, for example, our site is actually just a GitHub pages site, so it's a static site. But we needed SSL in front of it. And the only way to, to be hosting SSL is actually going through Cloudflare. But Cloudflare is a, a kind of WAF, but it also stops denial of service attacks. You can have different rules put in there. 
you can also do it as a CDN, so as a caching CDN. So that and this is Cloudflare. The the I mean the two things I would say is I'm pretty sure that we can now do SSL on GitHub pages using Let's Encrypt. I'm sure I saw an announcement about that not long ago. Okay. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah, Cloudflare is the ultimate perimeter defense. It sits between the world and your stuff. Yeah, and it does tons of things on even on the free tier. Yeah. So it will immediately do SSL, and it can do, is it HSTS? I think so, yeah. So this is the high-security SSL. It, does, um, it doesn't really do rate limiting per se, but you've got DDoS protection in there. You've got certain, you can whitelist or blacklist URLs or request paths. You can literally block off entire chunks of the world if you want from accessing your application. It's got caching. It's got all of this stuff built in. And the nice thing is that none of it runs on your kit. Right. So it's all external. And they've blocked some some scarily massive de- denial of service attacks and stuff like mm-hmm. that, right? You can also add apps and stuff like that to it. I'm not, I'm not here to sell you on it, but you, and this is on the free tier. Like even on the free tier, I can look at I can add SSL, I can add a HSTS. You can do a firewall, you can start saying what you block off, you can do a whole bunch of stuff. And it's free, so there's like literally no excuse not to add it to your well, site. Well, there is right? one counterpoint, and this okay. is me with my my devil's advocate. It does mean that you are putting a lot of faith in a single company yeah. that is not you, that potentially you're not paying, and even yeah. if you are. If Cloudflare goes down, it's a bit like if, if AWS goes down, you know, if an AWS region goes dark, and this has happened then lots of the internet stops working temporarily. Yeah. Or if you know NPM has problems, it becomes one of those kind of critical mass bits of your application. But at the same time, so many people are using it that the odds are very good that if Cloudflare were to have an issue, which is unlikely, then uh, it won't just be you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if Cloudflare has an issue, I prefer them to handle it. <laughs> But having said that, because of what they're doing, they're a big, big target. They're the big elephant in the room that the, the hackers are going to be going for, right? Yeah, so this is this is kind of what I was trying to get at, is that they are fending off the nastiest of the nasty in terms of attacks, uh, in terms of uh, DDoS, in terms of traffic volume. And the fact that they see it all first makes them very well placed to, to defend against it. And certainly they have resources that mere developers can only dream of. But it does also mean that they are potentially another another risk vector in your, your application. Uh, and the way that it's configured, it is not easy to kind of very quickly reverse out of a Cloudflare deployment. Right. I mean, you can't, um, so once you can't replicate done it, all of it. Well, no, it's, it's more that once you've done it, if it goes down, it's not like you can flick a switch and turn it off. Yeah. Whereas a, a web application firewall, for example, or, or FuseGuard, you can just disable it if you need to, if it's yeah. if it's running amok. Whereas, yeah, Cloudflare's, uh, you just need to make sure that you've considered both sides, the massive benefits, but also the the smaller but potential risks. Yeah. I've got just one point. One of the things that, that always bugs me is with Windows servers or other servers is that, so if I need to manage a Windows server, I have to RDP into it, right? Or RDC, yeah. remote desktop connection. And you go into that, and then you, realize, you start thinking to yourself, wait a minute, anyone can just log into this this server? Sure, they need to know the password, but you know, you're exposing this to the world. So if you have a server that uh, is allowing people, you, know, you have to have good firewall rules that say port 80 and HTTP, yes, the world, and port 443, 
more precisely, should be to the world, etc., etc. But there should be just pinholes in your in your server architecture. That means that only your your machine or your computer, or a certain computer, is allowed in to manage it, right? Yeah. So again, this kind of almost goes back to circle back to least privilege. It's the idea mm. that in a standard web application, what ports need to be open to the world, and they are basically port eighty and port four four three. Yeah, that's it. There are no more. And even port eighty is now becoming a bit dodgy. Why do you want port eighty? It should be well. It's basically because if people hit it, they need to be redirected, right. and to be by and large, it's safe. But if you wanted to, you could say yeah, just four four three. In terms of RDP, and it, this isn't a Windows thing either. Um, oh, you know, right. If we're yeah, doing yeah, Linux boxes, we've got port 22 for SSH, we've got uh, VNC potentially, although mm. why the hell you'd be using VNC to admin Linux box, I don't know. You know, These should be locked down to single addresses that you control. So you yeah. have a static IP address on your office internet connection, uh, and you have another one on your home office internet connection. Those are the only two. Yeah. If you don't have a static IP address on your home office internet connection, maybe because you're a road warrior or one of these these nomadic developers, mm. or you're a contractor who works out of different co-working spaces or coffee shops, set yourself up a Bastion server. Okay. Spin up a single node on DigitalOcean, configure a VPN, or use one of the VPN services that offer static IP. You know, there's lots of them out there that do it. And again, you can lock this down so that basically the network firewall, which is your, let's face it, your first line of defense against this kind of thing, will not allow connections to the remote desktop port from anybody other than you. Right. At which point the hackers can bang away at it as much as they want. Their scans will show naught. Yep. They will show nothing. They you know, won't they'll probably realise it's running on Windows because there's other ways to enumerate that, but you know, they just cannot get in if they can't get those initial packets through, then their attacks are foiled at the first hurdle. Yeah. So now we've done the software, we've gone inside the software, we've gone outside the software, the into the network. The last one is the human factors, right? Because you can have secured everything, but if you don't have people that are aware that your application will be attacked you need to kind of make them aware. That's the first part of information security. That's the easiest target to attack, right? I don't know about easiest, but it's certainly um, it's the hardest to actually secure. Right. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, uh, the, the, the two classic acronyms that I love here are uh, PEBCAC and ID10T. Oh, yeah. You know, but fundamentally, we can have the most well-designed, secured application in the world users are still going to be one of the weak links and they're probably the hardest one for us as developers and administrators we we have no control over these people mm. so we need to make sure that we've got we've considered the the human side of of securing our applications right i mean the first one is i blame post-its because we have like we were talking in the last episode about like passwords and how they're changing you know that the the security guidance on passwords is changing but until then it's like people like oh well you've given me this random string of 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 letters and and strange characters that i have to remember to log into my work password i'm gonna write it on a post-it and stick it on my computer mm -hmm. where i can see it and it's been it's even a joke because it's been in films. Don't want to spoil any recent films, but it was is you know part of 
what every single film was it was it even in Jurassic Park? I haven't seen Jurassic Park for ages, but uh, don't think it was in Jurassic Park. I think it was in War Games. War Games, right? If we're you... going back a fair way, yeah. And most recently, Spielberg's adaptation of Ready Player One. Yeah, that's it. Ready Player One. That was, yeah, I think that's it's a, that's a key pivotal plot point there. No yeah. spoilers. Just saying. Look out for the post-it. Yeah. And yeah, this is the problem. And to be honest, I don't blame post-its because the 3M Corporation are lovely people. Oh, no. <laughs> and if nothing else, the story of how the post-it note originated is hilarious and brilliant. And I'm not going to tell you it. Just go and look it up. It's amazing. Um, but I blame overzealous security engineers and this idea that actually entropy is king in passwords, which we've, we're starting to get away from. Yeah. And also the fact that you had to change your password, like it was, I think it's one of the settings in, in Microsoft that must change password every 30 every, days or Every day. 42 days is every, the default at right. the moment on Windows Server. And it has to be complicated, but that doesn't mean it has to be gibberish. And also there are systems that you can put in place that make it easy. We've talked about this before, battery yeah. hall, staple, etc. And also there are things like 2FA, mm-hmm. which when applied, and we'll, we'll come on, come back to this in a second as to when 2FA turns nasty, but they actually mean that your password security becomes not less important, but considerably less critical. Right. So we can have more readable passwords and not worry about it so yeah, much. Yeah, and having the right people access the right things, right? So... Mm-hmm. All this comes under kind of social engineering, and I've seen attacks happen to me. So, for example, I received a phone call many years back about that they needed my date of birth to confirm me for a FedEx. They said, this is FedEx. And, of course, in the UK, we don't have a lot of FedEx. We There's have some, UPS. but it's nowhere near as prolific as in the US. Yeah, Right. But so, but this obviously was a, a long, long distance call of somebody that was trying to get my birthday, and I was like, "What do they? They know my number. They knew kind of my name, and now they're trying to get my birthday." And then I realised that there are people out there that are trying to build a profile on somebody, and I don't mean like a, you know, they literally have a a spirit, a, a, a document that has what's their name, what's the mother's you know, maiden name, what's her date of birth, what's her first car, what's her home address, all these different bits of information that they try to get out of you in different ways, right? By either phishing attacks or by phone calls, which is uh, much easier, right? By doing like social engineering on you. By, because they say, you've won a prize. Just tell us what your phone number is. Didn't they catch somebody like that recently? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other two are... There was an example recently of Facebook quizzes. Right. <laughs> um, that were actually malicious Facebook quizzes. So it was like, which um, Harry Potter house do you belong in? Fill out this quiz. We need the name of your first pet, and we need your mother's maiden name, and where were you born, and oh, you're in Gryffindor. And, of course, you've basically just given away all of your password recovery data. Right. The other exactly. classic one is, as you say, it's the it's the ultimate phishing attack. It's like you have just won an iPad, but you have to register with our system, and our system is secure. So we'll ask you to put in things like, what was the primary school you went to? You set up a username and a password. And then actually it says, oh, well, we'll get back to you, and they never do. Because yeah. generally speaking, you're, well, a lot of this information doesn't change. Yeah, you know, if you're legitimately providing things like your mother's maiden name, and I say legitimately because there's a point that I'll talk about in a sec, or, or your school, those are common across all systems. Even leaving aside the fact that we know we shouldn't reuse passwords, we probably do. By and large, I mean, this is where one of the areas of, of 
system security that I really dislike is the use of personal information to recover this this kind of data. Right. So, and, and this is where, I mean, my approach to this is when they say, oh, we need three bits of recovery information. Like, great, you can have three more randomly generated passwords, and I just keep a log of those in an encrypted system like LastPass or, or OnePassword. Yeah. So my recovery data, what school did you go to? It's actually complete gibberish, 32 characters of nonsense. Because no one's going to uh, read it, right? You, you think someone's no. going to go, oh, you went also to, to, to Cambry School. That's very nice of you. Especially given that, going back to the application developer bit, if we're building these systems, that data also needs to be hashed or encrypted. Do not store it plain text right. in your applications. So yeah. just kind of looping it back a little bit. But yeah, the the whole level of social engineering and, and profile building is kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to get around it is to not actually give this inf or use this information in its its true form. If you are building a system, then please, 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 please consider alternatives to using personal information as a password recovery system. Yeah. There are good alternatives. And um, simple ones. Well, I say simple ones. I mean... Well, there's two-factor authentication via SMS, right, Rob? Yeah, <clears throat> right. Okay, so we, we know that 2FA is a good thing. Yeah. Shall we explain what two-factor authentication is? Sorry, yeah, so 2FA is basically you put in your username, you put in your password, and you have to supply another bit of information. Right. And normally that bit of information is a uh, – it's referred to as a TOTP, a time-limited one-time password. Right. And there are a couple of different ways we can get these. We can have an app on our phone that generates them using basically a shared key. Mm -hmm. And it's a six-digit number, right? And we tap it in, and every 30 seconds that number changes. So in theory, you cannot access an account unless you have the device, the phone, that's generating those codes. And you can't reuse them, so even if you spot somebody typing it in, it can't be reused, and you need a new one every 30 seconds. Because it's kind of that's the requirement of you having a device, but also, for example, Slack, if you try to log in, you've got... It's emails you your login is like a one one time use token, right? Yeah, so you'll get email verification yeah. is another form of two FA, and then we've got things like hardware tokens. Uh, some of these generate codes, and some right. of these, the likes of the new Fido U two F stuff, are really quite cool. To be honest, they they generate much longer codes, or they they do a seamless pass through in the web browser. So the idea is that it's no longer sufficient for a user to just have their username and their password. Right. They have to have another bit of information. This is the second factor. Yeah. And it's a time-limited factor. That's the whole point about this, right? It's time-limited and it's single-use. Yeah. I'll talk a bit about implementation of this kind of system in a second because there are some gotchas there as well. The one thing that makes me shudder is when people roll out 2FA and they decide that they're going to send this system over SMS. Okay. They're going to send that code to you via text message. But why? Should that be like pretty secure? Like the text uh -huh. messages only come to me, right? They only come to whoever holds the SIM card that has your phone number. Okay, but if... Right. So this is where we get into a fairly common, and there are examples. This is not just me being paranoid. There are real examples of this. That generally speaking, your telecom company... So let's say you're with uh, Acmecom because I don't want to name a real one, <laughs> right. because I'm about to call them idiots. Yeah. And Acmecom Telecoms have a help desk, and somebody phones up Acmecom Telecoms, and they say, Hi, my name is Mark. I've lost my phone. I need a new SIM card. But I moved, and uh, I moved last week, and I didn't tell you where I moved to. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't update the information. Can I, can I get you to ship the card to my work address, please? 
and then they give them uh, an address. And by and large, most of these systems will fail in that they will, uh, the, the telecoms provider can be badgered or beleaguered into sending a new SIM card to an address that is not yours. Because in, in, point, in that way that you've said it, you've said it very uh, calmly, but I've seen, and you can look up for, for this, uh, uh, social engineering videos, I've seen like a mother going like, oh my God, my husband's out of town, I don't have my phone, he took the phone, I need you oh, to send yeah. me a new chip. You, you uh, lay it on thick, and, right? And then you get, a, you get a YouTube video for baby crying in the background, Yep, which is usually um, a, a nice one for for like adding stress Man, that's, that's evil i hadn't thought of that one yes uh but yeah basically they raise the stress level sufficiently to the point where the poor guy on or girl on the other end of the phone who's probably on his minimum wage call center right they're just following a, a checklist and they will basically normally send out a new sim card now that sim card these days they're activated the minute they're inserted and the old one stops working yep so if somebody has managed to get your username and password and you're using SMS for 2FA, they will know this because the systems, the web uh, sites and applications normally tell the user that they're using SMS for 2FA and it's eminently breakable. Because let's put it this way, you will notice that your phone stops working, but you may not notice immediately. Right. You will absolutely notice if your phone goes missing. Right. Exactly, but your phone's still here, it's quiet, you haven't received a, a text message for a little bit, and in that time, someone's been well, getting into your your. The trouble banking. is that, depending on how you're set up, a lot of modern telecoms providers, well, let's talk about SMS for one, you're probably not using SMS for anything. Yeah. You're using iMessage or WhatsApp or Telegram. Your phone's still binging and bonging because you're on Wi-Fi. Yeah. A lot of telecoms providers these days actually have Wi-Fi calling. They're routing... You know, the phone calls over Wi-Fi, so that will probably still work for a bit. You know, so far as you're concerned, nothing is wrong, and yet, potentially, SMS for 2FA is bad. There we go. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Well, you scared me enough already. So what's, what's the alternative to that? We use an authenticator app. Right. We use Google Authenticator. We use Authy. We use Duo or SaaSpass, which is one that um, I quite like because they're they're portable. Or we use hardware tokens, and we put that on a device that is secure. So this is a, uh, and I'm not going to get into the whys and wherefores of iPhone versus Android. Either is perfectly secure, provided you haven't monkeyed with it, provided it's got a good passcode on it. Mm-hmm. And that way, to get to those codes, somebody has to get your phone. They have to break your passcode, and you'll notice that your phone is gone. Right, right. and it's also usually that these passcodes are biometric, so. Mm-hmm. iPhone 10 does facial recognition. iPhone 7 was what fingerprint. iPhone recognition. 7 and 8 do Touch ID. Yeah, you know a lot of the Android stuff now has fingerprint recognition. Even if they don't, you know a yeah. good six or eight digit code is quite hard to break, especially given that most of these phones can be, can be configured to self destruct yeah. if you put the code in say ten, ten times. Yeah, and they should be. It's not out of the box on Apple. It really annoys me that the iPhone doesn't switch this on by default. Switch it on. Then they've got 10 goes, and then basically, fair enough, minor inconvenience for you, but they've already nicked your phone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're already pretty I mean, peed off. Exactly. And it means that they just cannot get at these codes. 2FA via email is an interesting one, because there have been some really high-profile cases where email has been the vector to break into other systems. Okay. Because if you're using, say, Gmail or Yahoo or Hotmail, God, I'm showing my age. Uh, Sorry, uh, was it live.com now or is it outlook.com? It's outlook.com. 
yeah, you're using one of these web-hosted free email accounts, which we all are. Review your security there because you would be amazed how many password reset systems are email-based. Hmm. And a lot of the stuff from a user perspective, we need to make sure that they're aware that they need to keep their email secure. Because otherwise, our password reset will send them an email. If somebody else can read that email, they can get that password reset. I think we have to have a whole episode on, on email security. Or just email generally. Yeah, email fun. generally, yeah. I have issues. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate we're running a little bit long on this, but from a, a developer perspective, if we're implementing 2FA, then we need to do a couple of things straight out of the bat, and one being avoid the temptation to use SMS. I know the Twilio guys are great fun at conferences, uh, and they will try <laughs> and, and pitch you their services, but it's not their problem, it's the other end. Yep. Don't use SMS. Right. And don't necessarily use uh, mobile phone voice either because, because that's, that's the other option right it's like do you mean to phone you or send your text to, the, to this yeah. right just assume that the phone number itself is inherently portable yeah and therefore not safe there we go but also if we're doing you know uh, authenticator codes make sure that your application is making them single use yeah there's a there's a whole rfc there's uh, rfc 6238 and the other one <laughs> And all of these are designed around the concept of a nonce, a single-use code. They should never be allowed to be reused, and they should be validated against uh, you know, the, the, the private key. The time stuff is quite interesting because you often have problems keeping clocks in sync. Okay. And a lot of systems, you'll think, well, the 30 seconds has gone, the code's toggled, but it still works. There's a yeah. bit of, of play there. Yeah, but that's but, a good thing, in my opinion, yeah. because, like, for example, like, you've got, like, 10 seconds, you're typing it in, you got to the fact, you know, got to that that you've typed the last bit in, you're about to press thing, and it's gone to a new code, and you press enter, and the website accepts it. And I was like, ooh, the geek in me kind of screams out. But then I go, oh, yeah, but this is a human thing that, well, it's within a minute, really, that, that you're meant to be doing. Well, I think that's right? the thing, is that the codes are validatable within any period or within 60 seconds, but it refreshes every 30. Because I know that Amazon, when you set up multi-factor on Amazon Web Services, they ask you for two codes, and they validate both of them. Right, yeah, yeah. After so, a period of time, don't yeah. they? Well, you put the first one in, and then obviously that's gone, and the second one appears, so you're okay, dealing yeah. with at least a window of a minute. But yeah, so if you're building 2FA, we want to use HOTP or TOTP. Make sure that you're actually invalidating previous codes. You're not allowing reuse or replay. And by and large, again, I, I know I said this last time, do your best not to reinvent the wheel here. Yeah. There are standards, there are, there are probably plugins or modules or libraries that will do all of this for you. Validate them, check them, and use them. Yeah. This is kind of like the end user problem overall. Is the people using our systems and granting access to our system. But I think there's also administrator, and I say not system administrators, application administrators, people that are in charge of giving access, giving user access to your application, right? So, like, if you have a customer service agent and, this, and they can reset the password, if your system allows them to type in a new password, stop that they should be able to just send out a password reset requests, right? Mm -hmm. That's as much as they should be able to do. If you've got an area that has got a field that some guy that's in your call center can fill in a new password and then speak it to somebody else, again, you're failing. Yeah. They, if Basically, if they can do anything as that user, and this is, again, this is a tricky one because so many customer service departments love this stuff. 
right. the ability to impersonate a user or use the system as them is actually a real winner mm. for them from a productivity perspective because they can see what the user's seeing. They can just solve it because, by and large, the trouble is if you're the user, you're on the phone, you don't want to be waiting for an email to arrive and then follow a link and fill out three... But a lot of it comes down to just explaining to the user that the reason we do this is for your security. And that's getting more and more. I think we're getting GDPR, we're getting which is about usage. I can just see that there's going to be a lot more security diktats from the EU and from the US after all the things that have happened currently in in uh, you know with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so privacy and cybersecurity in this day and age go hand in hand, right? Yeah. And fair enough, the initial focus is on securing rights to privacy. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong, by the way. I'm just saying that's the initial focus of the, the lawmakers. It's logical to assume that they will actually begin the next stage, which is root cause, which is ensuring that companies legally have to demonstrate cybersecurity. At the moment, the only kind of businesses that have to do this stuff are those using credit card information fall under PCI DSS. Mm -hmm. Those processing healthcare information in the US fall under HIPAA. And I think there's probably a couple of others if you're dealing with, you know, military systems. Yeah. But they're actually quite, you know, specific at the moment. We can expect to see a much broader set of requirements coming out across all companies, whether they're technology-driven or not. So it's almost certainly worth taking the time to ensure that you as a developer, you as a manager, you as a project manager, you as a tester, and even you as a user are aware of what these things look like. Because the final thing I would say, just looking at this from a user perspective, the number of times I have emailed site administrators or system um, support desk to say, you just sent me my password in plain text. Yeah. Oh, God, that should be a red flag. Or this bit of your system is broken. Yeah, yeah, this is why. And fair enough, most of the time they ignore me. Yeah. But at least I've done my bit. I've reported it to them. And generally speaking, I will very quietly move important things away from that system yeah. and stop using it. Oh, God, yeah. That, that always frightens me. But on a good note, hopefully our listeners are now a little bit more informed or what to look out for, what to implement, how to secure themselves a little bit. And we can... Yeah improve the internet a little bit at a time one unformed validation one password reset and one 2fa request at a time yeah i know that you've got a couple of, of bits to finish up on but before you get into that i would say that i think this is probably us for security for now yeah i appreciate that we've done you know a couple of fairly deep bits and i hopefully you can understand why the importance of the topic uh, we'll go on to something a bit more fun next time <laughs> a bit lighter yeah. a bit less fundamentally terrifying yeah HIPAA compliance no. God, no. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you, everyone. We've got some final notes, which I want to say to a big thank you to Veep Vaishvilaite for editing all the last few episodes of the podcast and probably this one. And uh, we shall be seeing everyone next time. Until then. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.